Um, I just want to introduce myself, and I have to stop myself from saying I'm Brad Myers, I'm the adult ministries pastor. I'm no longer the adult ministries pastor here at Faith Bible Church. Um, I am now the interim preacher here in our season as we look for the next senior pastor here at the church. It's a privilege and an honor and a responsibility to be here with you this morning. One of my heroes, if you will, uh, his name is Charles Simeon. I don't know how many of you would be familiar with the name. Uh, he, he kind of revived faithful gospel preaching, biblical preaching in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, he was known to say that he always had three goals in his preaching on any Sunday. His goals were, number one, to humble the sinner, number two, to exalt the Savior, and number three, to promote holiness. To humble the sinner, to exalt the Savior, and promote holiness, and I figure I probably can't do much better than Charles Simeon in that respect. So, fair warning, I am not Tom. You all recognize that. Um, I don't have Tom's style when it comes to preaching. I don't have Tom's style when it comes to fashion. I apologize, Tim, <laughs> for that. Uh, I can't match Tom in that respect, uh, but I do hope to build on his foundation and legacy of biblical exposition as we continue to move forward in this interim season. My motivation for teaching and preaching comes from 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, and I just want to read that for you briefly this morning. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's my goal, and that's my commitment to you this morning. Each week, I will seek to fulfill my ministry for as long as it may last through faith, faithful biblical exposition. To that end, open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. It doesn't get a lot of play. It's one of those minor prophets that a lot of us have a tendency to ignore, but we're going to spend a few weeks here in the book of Malachi. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider something with me as we sit here in what we call our worship service. What should the goal of our worship of God be? What's the goal? What kind of worship should we be aiming for, both when we gather together corporately and when we set, go off into our own lives individually? What should be the goal of our worship? Current culture would tell you in worship there's a number of different things we should be shooting for. Maybe authentic worship. Authentic gets a lot of play today. Something that exudes from our heart, something that is a real expression of who we are. Maybe comfortable worship. Those styles and those things and those activities that make us feel at home and make us feel comfortable. How about professional worship? One of the things Troy has to fight in our formal worship together is, is it supposed to be professional and polished like everything you listen to on the radio? Or how about emotional worship? Worship of God should first and foremost be emotional. It should be about what it causes us to feel and expressing those feelings. Is that what the goal of worship should be? In contrast to that, in our study of Hebrews a couple months ago, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
for our God is a consuming fire. Are these goals of what common culture tells us is the goal of worship? Is that acceptable worship in God's eyes? Is that what we should be shooting for as we live our lives of worship, like Romans 12 tells us, or as we come together in worship when we gather? That is the heartbeat of the book of Malachi. Before we dive in here, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the fact that we can gather it all, for the fact that you've called out a people to your name, that you've called us to gather, to praise you, and to encourage each other. Lord, we pray that we have done that so far, and we ask that as we continue with the study of your word, that we would continue to worship you, and that we would understand rightly what you've called us to. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to understand your word through the book of Malachi here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've got your Bible open to Malachi, you'll recognize that it starts with a very standard way, a few bit of an introduction on who Malachi is and on the book. Verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, what is an oracle? What are we talking about here? The term oracle conveys the idea of a weighty message. The original actual word comes from the idea of a weight, something of such significance that it bears a weight and it bears a burden on the one that's going to deliver it. Fair warning, the book of Malachi is a rebuking prophet. There's a bit of a sting in the weight of this message as we walk through it. And who is it to? Who is this message to be delivered to? You see the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel. Now who's Israel here? A little bit of context goes a long way. Israel, specifically who we're referring to here, is the returning generations behind those that had gone to exile in Babylon probably the second or third generation after they had returned from exile in Babylon, back to Israel. As you'll recall the history of the Old Testament, about 1,000 B.C., God raises up Saul and then establishes the Davidic kingdom through David. His son Solomon takes over, but then through a series of bad leadership decisions, the kingdom is split. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Things go from bad to worse as about 722, the northern tribes are destroyed by the Assyrians and wiped out. A few years later, not learning from the northern tribes, Judah, the two tribes in the south, are taken into exile in Babylon. Seventy years later, they return, and the temple is finished probably about 515 B.C. Then you have the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 400s. 458 and probably 445, you've got Ezra and Nehemiah. If you're part of the youth and you've been listening to Pastor James teach on these books, this is the context of where we find ourselves. Malachi is likely either between the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah or right in the middle of Nehemiah's ministry as he returns back to Babylon before coming back. And why is this important? Because in this second or third generation, the Israelites, though they had returned back to the promised land, they had grown complacent in their worship. They had grown sarcastic and they had grown lazy and they had grown a bit cynical of this God who had brought them back to Israel. And so God sends them this messenger, Malachi. Now we don't know a whole lot about who Malachi was. There's not a lot in the book that places it precisely. Malachi literally means my messenger. 
Though we don't know if that's like an honorary title of Malachi or actually his name. But regardless, it doesn't really matter because Malachi's message is what is the priority here. Malachi moves from the first verse into the second, and he moves through six discourses or complaints the people have against God. The whole book takes on kind of a courtroom feel as God and Israel go back and forth as they argue about what's going on in Israel. We'll deal with each of these six discourses over the course of the coming weeks, but this first one I've entitled Forgetful Worship. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, the people issue their first complaint against God, and God responds to it. And each of these discourses, each of these arguments between God and the people highlights a worship practice that reveals a heart issue in the people. And we're going to walk through those one at a time. So if you're an outline fan, you'd like to take this down, here's how it breaks down. Verse 2a, the beginning of verse 2, is the accusation. The people lob an accusation against God. In verses 2b through 4, God responds to that accusation. I'm calling this the defense much like a courtroom, like I said. And then verse 5, we see the implication. What does that mean for the Israelites then, and what does that mean for us today? The accusation, the defense, the implication, much like a courtroom. Let's read verses 2 through 5 together. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of course says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Did you hear the accusation, the defense, and the implication? The accusation begins as God says, I have loved you. He expresses to his people, I have loved you. Unless we misunderstand, the English is a little bit tricky here because have makes us think past tense. As if in some point in the past, God loved his people, but no longer. The verb tense is actually perfect. It's actually ongoing. He's saying, I have loved you in the past, I love you now, and I will love you in the future. But much like a sullen child who hasn't gotten what he wants, Israel fires back, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Prove it. The implication is you haven't loved us. You haven't loved us God? And why would Israel think that's the case? Why would Israel be taking this issue with God and firing this accusation at God? I mean, they were back from the exile, right? The temple had been rebuilt, right? Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls, right? But these returning exiles were once again insignificant on the world stage. The days of David and Solomon and Uzziah, where Israel held a prominent place in that part of the world, were gone. And even more than that, there wasn't even a Davidic king sitting on the throne. They were a puppet of a Persian empire miles and miles away. 
And perhaps most significantly, God hadn't yet sent the Messiah that he had promised through so many of the Old Testament prophets. And so the people sit there, they look around at their circumstances, and they say, God, how have you loved us? In short, their circumstances defied what they expected of God. God just wasn't working quite fast enough for their taste. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt yourself saying, God, how have you loved me? Maybe it's a financial problem in your life that just won't go away. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, you always come up short at the end of the month. Maybe it's some sort of friendship or relationship that hasn't been restored, and it's an ongoing challenge in your life. Maybe it's an illness that God has chosen not to heal. Or how about a plan that didn't work out quite like you expected? You thought for sure God was calling you here, but then things don't pan out the way you expected them to. In short, God didn't meet your expectations. And so we feel so let down by God that obedience to him and worship of him just feels forced. It just feels stale. And we find ourselves saying, God, how have you loved us? I don't see it. But how does God respond to these accusations? What does God have to say in response to Israel's issue with him and potentially our heart issue with him as well? What will he say in his defense? Fair warning, it's probably not what we would expect him to say. He doesn't answer Israel on their terms. He gives them the answer they need, not the answer they want. Look at the defense in verses 2 and 3. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What a strange response. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What is he talking about here? Why does he go back to Israel's history and talk about their forefathers and their estranged uncle, if you will? And part of this is we have to overcome our current modern understanding of love. We interpret love as this thing, this feeling that we fall into and we fall out of. And sometimes we feel loving and sometimes we don't feel loving. And sometimes this emotion of love is is gooey and exciting and you know i mean we've probably got some recently dating couples out there right okay it's not what god's talking about here there's two words for love and this isn't that one this isn't the feeling of love this is covenant language this is god's commitment to his people god is emphasizing his initial election choice and his ongoing faithfulness to israel And in case you're wondering, did we pick a rebuking prophet for the first message in the interim season? Yes. Is the first message going to relate to election? Yes. I apologize, okay? That's what's going on here. Okay? He's saying covenant language. Kids, this love would be the perfect thing to write down in your book. God's initial choice of his people 
And his ongoing faithfulness to them is the way he expresses his love to Israel. They're accusing him of not loving them. He responds with, I have chosen you. I'm not going to go back to Genesis 25, but I would encourage you to read it this afternoon where we get the beginning of this story. We get the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, the, the promise of God's love is made to Abraham. He has a son named Isaac. He marries Rebekah. Rebekah is pregnant with twins, and she has these two kids in her womb. And they're wrestling, and they're fighting with each other, and she's going, what in the world is going on? And God says, you've got two. They will become great nations, and they will fight with each other. But the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. Before Jacob and Esau had done anything, God says to Rebekah, I have chosen Jacob. I have set my covenant love on Jacob. This gets reaffirmed to Israel at multiple times in their history. Stick your finger in Malachi and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy are the final sermons of Moses to Israel before they enter the promised land and take possession of this land God has promised to them. In chapter 7, verses 6 through 11, we read some really interesting language, a message that Moses, God through Moses, delivers to his people before they enter the promised land. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Did you pick up on it? He chose your forefathers. It was not because they were great. It was not because they were mighty. It was not because they deserved it. Yet he chose them. And he is faithful to his promises. This gets tested again and again and again through Israel's history, doesn't it? As the people disobey God and God proves his faithfulness. As he disciplines them and they return to him. The book of Hosea, which would be a great study at some point in the future for us, is a perfect example of this. As God calls his prophet Hosea to marry a woman of ill repute, to exemplify the people. Just like God loved Israel, Hosea marries this woman and she runs away from him repeatedly. And he repeatedly commands Hosea, go get her back. Go love her anyway. Go prove your faithfulness to your covenant. And it exemplifies God's love for his people. 
again and again and again. Finally, this passage in Malachi in the New Testament gets interpreted back. Turn with me to Romans 9, and I know this is a sticky passage. In Romans 9, verses 16 or 6 through 13, Paul, looking back on Malachi, interprets this section and applies it to the New Testament believers. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year we'll return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that, the, that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Consistently, this is how the Bible speaks of God's choice and love for his people. In the New Testament, Paul calls us to, to ground our faith in that reality as well. See, it's interesting. The people respond back, looking at their circumstances, they respond back to God, how have you loved us? We don't see your love. We don't feel your love. Our circumstances don't make us feel loved. And God's defense is, how can you say I don't love you? Have you forgotten that I chose you? That I picked you out of the peoples of the whole world, not because you deserved it, but because I set my love on you. And that's what we need to be reminded of too when we look at our circumstances and say, God, what have you done for us lately? I look at my life, I look at my world, and I go, what have you done? How have you loved me? And God says, I chose you. If you've placed your faith and your hope in Christ, God chose you. He loves you. He will not leave that faithful commitment to you, regardless of what your circumstances in life look like. And we need the same reminder Malachi needed, or that the people Malachi was addressing needed. Now, it's interesting, in verse 3 and 4, he goes on and he gives us a counterexample. Again, this probably isn't what we would do, but he says, what happens to those that I haven't chosen? What happened to Edom? What happened to Esau? And we see three actions against Edom here. He says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. First, we see Edom's destruction. Edom had been this ongoing enemy of the people of God, of Israel. In fact, it's so far that most people think that Edom had played a role in the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Judah. Edom had all the time antagonized Israel. And God says, 
I have laid waste to Edom. I will destroy this enemy. I will destroy this one I have not placed my love on. And those are hard words. And we struggle with that reality. This idea of God hating Esau. Now, there's two things this does not mean. The first is that it does not mean that God had some sinful, vengeful, vindictive feeling against Esau that gets fleshed out through his hatred of Esau. No, that's human hatred. That's not covenant language. That's how we respond when we're hurt. It also doesn't mean that God just loved Esau a little less. It's not the idea here. God chose Jacob. God didn't choose Esau. And man, in our natural rebellion, when we are not chosen by God, rightly deserve God's wrath. And God comes in, and he lays waste to Edom. And we see this played out in history. In fact, it's so complete that when archaeologists try to figure out exactly when Edom fell, they can't, because there's so little archaeological evidence of this time period. All we know is generations down the road, Edom is gone and never restores their national identity. But in addition to destroying Edom, we also see Edom's futility. Look at verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They may build, but I will tear down. And in case you're wondering, this isn't because Edom was weak. Edom was a strong nation. Edom appeared to the outside to be very established on the world scene. And yet God says, if they try and rebuild, I will make them futile in their efforts. I will tear it down. It's worth noting here that we see the first of 24 uses of the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of angel armies here. Highlight that, underlight that, note that. I think you're going to see it come up 24 times in the book of Malachi. It's the idea of God being the commander of these armies of heaven. It's a military idea. There's going to be more on that next week, okay? So just stick a pin in it. God will make the plans of Edom futile as the Lord of hosts. And so Edom is destroyed. Edom is futile in their efforts to rebuild. And lastly, we see Edom's ongoing reputation. Look at the end of verse 4. They say they'll rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. As a people, their reputation will be a wicked country that the Lord is angry with forever. What a reputation that Esau's descendants and Edom get. The point is, he's saying, everybody has rebelled against me. All of humankind is sinful and rebellious. But I have chosen you, and I have not chosen Edom. Look at your fate versus their fate. One of the commentaries I was reading this week put it this way. This is exactly God's purpose in Malachi. He is making the riches of his glory known among the restored community of Israel by demonstrating the sovereignty of his electing love. 
They deserve nothing from him and would wind up in the same state as Edom for their wickedness, were it not for his changeless and sovereign love. They deserve nothing from him and would wind up in the same state as Edom for their wickedness, were it not for his changeless and sovereign love. That should humble us. That should fill us with awe and wonder at this God who loves us. Let me rephrase this. This is exactly God's purpose in Malachi. He is making the riches of his glory known among the restored community of Israel by demonstrating the sovereignty of his electing love. We deserve nothing from him and would wind up in the same state as Edom for our wickedness were it not for his changeless and sovereign love. Amen, right? This is who we are as the people of God, not because we were great, not because we were mighty, not because we were wise, but because he chose us. He loved us. He sent his son for us. I summarize it this way. God's love and greatness are displayed powerfully through his covenant faithfulness to his people. God puts his love and greatness on display in his covenant faithfulness to his people. God has been faithful to us. Regardless of what we look around and see in our circumstances, God chose us and God loves us. But God doesn't just stop with the, or the defense of his love. He goes on in Malachi to explain the implications of this reality for his people. Because seeing God for who he is necessitates a response in us. It should stimulate a reaction or a response on our part. And so in verse 5, we get the implication of this. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Two brief results that we see in the people. First, he says, you shall see this with your own eyes. You will look over at what had been Edom, this perennial enemy of you, and you will see what God does with those that rebel against him. The people were looking at God and saying, we don't see it. We don't see your love. We don't feel your love. What they needed was a reminder. They had forgotten what motivated their worship of God. And what will be the response? You will see what I have done to Edom and you will say, great is the Lord. This is worship. This is extolling the greatness of the God we serve. Our worship ministry defines worship as giving honor and respect to God. Declaring the worth of the God we serve. And when this reality of God's love, God's totally undeserved love, reacts with our hearts and souls, worship is the only possible response. 
The appreciation for an undeserved gift is an incredible joy, is it not? Way more than when we get what we feel like we deserve. You want an example of this? Think about it. I don't know what day of the week you get paid, but when you receive your paycheck for an honest week's work, at the end of the week, at the end of the every other week, at the end of the month, whatever the case might be, and it gets into your account, it's a, it's a pretty big deal, right? At least it is for me. Maybe it's not for everybody else, but it's a pretty big deal, right? There's a sense of joy. There's an excitement there. I got paid, and I got paid for what I deserved. It's exciting. Compare that with Christmas morning or the morning of your birthday. When you receive a gift that is entirely unmerited, that no one owed you, how does the joy compare? How does the response compare? God looks at them and says, you didn't deserve that I would set my love on you, and yet I did. And that should inspire in your heart honor and respect and worship for me. And not only will it be for you, but you will say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. You will come to realize that God is the king everywhere. Immediately, that meant Edom, the surrounding nation for Israel, but ultimately that means a reality of people everywhere in the world worshiping God. Our task as New Testament saints is to share the gospel with a lost and dying world so that they would all become worshipers of the one true God. And in Revelation 7, we see nations and tribes and tongues all rightly oriented, worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. See, I think the point here that we need to remember for our own worship is that Hebrews 12, acceptable worship, begins with a right perspective on our relationship with God. Offering acceptable worship to God begins with an understanding of our right relationship with Him. That we don't bring something to Him out of the abundance of our wealth. That we don't bring something to Him out of our own righteousness. That He loved us before we loved Him. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We offer acceptable worship to him only out of the abundance of what he has poured into us. Acceptable worship begins, doesn't end there, but it begins with a right perspective on our relationship with God. What he has done for us, what he has done in us, and what he deserves from us. This first discourse of the people responding back to God and arguing with God. They have forgotten who God is. They've forgotten what God has done. This accusation, God, you don't love us. We can't see it. What have you done for us? We have to remember God's defense, God's response. I have always loved you. I chose you. Out of all the peoples of the world, I chose you you. And the implication is that acceptable worship begins with us remembering the significance of God's undeserved covenant love for us. If that doesn't inspire awe and worship from us, I don't know what will. And so I think there's three reminders we need to take away from this 
discourse in Malachi with God. We, in 21st century Lincoln, Nebraska, need to be reminded first and foremost that worship is initiated by God's choice. Worship is initiated by God. He calls us out. He defines what worship is. He gathers us together. He deserves our worship, and he initiates to see that worship taking place. Second, we need to be reminded that worship is motivated by God's grace. Do you struggle in your life looking around at your circumstances? Do you struggle walking in these doors, worshiping God for who he is? If you do, I would submit to you, that's a struggle in your heart of recognizing just what you've been given. We fail to worship God insofar as we fail to recognize what he has done for us. Our worship of God is motivated by God's grace in our lives. It doesn't mean it's always easy. It doesn't mean it's always happy. It doesn't mean we're always upbeat. But the motivation for our worship of God is his grace in our lives. And then finally, we need to be reminded that worship is focused on God's glory. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. There's nothing particularly wrong with professional worship. There's nothing particularly wrong with emotional worship. There's nothing particularly wrong with any of the ways that our culture defines worship. Except <laughs> that it's not focused on the one whom we worship. When I'm thinking about what makes me emotional, what makes me comfortable, what makes me happy, I'm not focused on God's glory. If I walk in here or I walk out of here and I'm thinking about what style of music could Troy pick that would make me a little bit happier? If I'm thinking about what could the people around me do that would make my experience more joyful? Our attention is focused on the wrong thing. Worship is focused on God's glory. This is the first discourse in the book of Malachi. I think we'll find the rest both challenging and compelling as God tries to orient his people's attention back to where it should be. John Piper summarizes the words of Malachi so well when he says this. Malachi's burden in this book is to show us a God whose goodness makes us tremble. Does God's goodness make you tremble? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. We recognize that we stand entirely empty-handed when it comes to bringing you an offering of worship. There is nothing in our sinful state that we could offer to you that would be worth what you deserve. And yet, in spite of that reality, you have placed your love on us. You have chosen us, you have saved us, you have called us out of this world, and you've called us into worshiping you together. Father, as we continue to work through the message of Malachi, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Lord, for those that are here that are discouraged and struggling, that you would impress upon them the significance of what you've done for them. That their circumstances, though real and though painful, 
pale in comparison to the goodness that you have placed on them. Father, we thank you for the fact that you love us, that you've chosen us, and that you allow us to live lives of worshiping you. In Jesus' name, amen.